Today's reading is Psalm 86. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you, because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all of my heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths of the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me, because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness, that my enemies will see it and may, put it, may be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. From the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the Psalms, I, I really appreciate the Psalms, God's prayer book. Uh, really for, for Israel, and it helps us to learn how to pray or at least learn how to engage God in such a way that we might be able to pray. The Psalms are incredibly honest, right, about our experiences and our life. I've heard some people not connect with the Psalms because of how earthy it is, because of how honest the speech is. It almost seems like um, there are things we shouldn't say to God, but they're in the Psalms, and they, they kind of provide freedom of expression in terms of how we relate to God. And in Psalm 86, as we already heard it read, there are a few things that the psalmist does that I'd like to just point out and observe, because what he, I think what the psalmist is doing is acknowledging some real tensions about life. He's trying to be honest about life. So there's an incredible honesty about circumstances. If you see in verses 1 and 2, you see that he says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. So there's this sense in which he's needy, he's poor, he needs something, which he picks back up in verses 6 through 7. He says, I'm crying out to you. I'm in a day of trouble. And then in verse 14, he kind of teases it out a little bit more, suggesting that he's under threat and experiencing a tremendous amount of of hostility. So this, the psalmist is undergoing some personal turmoil in his life and calls out to God, cries out to God for what's going on. And he's being honest about his life. But he's also honest about who God is and has been in the midst of his circumstances. Again, starting in verse 2, he acknowledges God as, as his God he says, you are my God. In verses 5, he said, you are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. In verse 8, he says to God, there is none like you among the gods. In verse 10, he tells God that you are great and you do wondrous things. In verses 13, he says, great is your steadfast love. You delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. 
Verse 15, you are a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So these two things that he's trying to be honest about, circumstances and the reality of who God has revealed himself to be in his life and even in those circumstances. God, I'm in need, I'm in trouble, but you are a God who is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. God, I cry, I cry out to you, but God, I can trust you. You are greater than all the other gods. I mean, there's this incredible reality of, of spirituality that's really born out of a relationship. That's what I love about this psalm and psalms in general, is that you see a real relationality between the one who's praying and the, and the God to whom the one is praying. There's this relationship that undergirds this speech and honesty. But what I really want to talk about is the psalmist refers to this thing throughout three times. Steadfast love. He constantly comes back to this. Well, it's because of your steadfast love that dot, dot, dot. Steadfast love. Steadfast love. You're abounding in steadfast love. Now, to hear those words, I've heard those words so many times being in church. And sometimes I can just read over that and be like, oh yeah, steadfast love, I totally know what that means. It's totally obvious, right? I know I've experienced love, um, and for it to be steadfast, okay, it's kind of ongoing. But I just read over it, and I don't realize, or I haven't realized often, how much or how significant this actually is to the life with God, to our spiritual lives. Now, the Hebrew word that is being used here is the word hesed. Now, the word hesed is, is translated in so many different ways in the Old Testament. Now, steadfast love is one of those ways. Loving kindness is another. Mercy is another word that has at its root hesed. I mean, it's almost like this is a word that people are just like, well, what, do I, what sounds good today? All right, loving kindness, great. Uh, steadfast love, for sure. I mean, it, just, it shows up, and it's not just, it doesn't just define love between people and God or God to people, but it also defines love between one another. Like, we can love one another in this way. And so if we think about the word said, and Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, has been super helpful for me here, and I came across this definition of said that has haunted me. And he defines it as reliable solidarity. So said, this steadfast love, this loving kindness... Brueggemann says, well, it's God's reliable solidarity with us, to us. I think that word is really helpful for me because to be reliable means to be a God in whom I can trust, in whom will be there. And for a God to to truly pursue solidarity is a God who's with me, a God who knows me, knows my circumstances. For me, it just conjures up this this image of relationship. It's not something I can just understand and have downloaded into my brain. It actually is a journey and an experience over time where I can begin to see and understand God's reliable solidarity, God's said, God's steadfast love in my life. Now, the primary way that in the people of Israel, and even to us now, that God has shown his reliable solidarity to people is through the idea of covenant. So covenant is so foundational to the people of Israel because God making a covenant 
with his people is to suggest that God is their God and that they are his people. In Exodus 20, verse 2, which comes right before the, the Ten Commandments, which is, which is the thing, which is the law, that are basically the terms of this covenant relationship that God is going to have with his people. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord your God. So for God to be in covenant with us, and we have a new covenant in the blood of Jesus, for God to be covenant with us is for God to be our God. And for us to be his people. Now God isn't our God because we possess him, or because we've taken hold of him. God is our God because he's taken hold of us. Like God has actually reached out and come to us to take hold of us. It's not like the people of Israel found God. No, God found them under the tyranny and oppression of Egypt and rescued them and said, you are my people and I am your God. And why this is significant in terms of covenant, in terms of God's reliable solidarity, is because I'd like to suggest that the actual covenant holding belongs to God, not to us. And I think we, or I, often reverse it. I think that the relationship, my relationship with God, I'm the key to that. And if I somehow remove myself for whatever reason or take myself out of that relationship, then all of a sudden things crumble. All of a sudden, the relationship is at stake. But if we really take hold of the reality that God is the one who holds us, who's in covenant to us, and he is the one, despite, like the people of Israel, who are constantly committing adultery with other gods and idols, who are constantly turning their back on God, who are constantly forgetting who they are, forgetting who God is. God is the one who still remains. He is the constant. We aren't the constant. I often feel like I'm not the constant, and so therefore I think the relationship is in jeopardy, but that is just not true because of God's reliable solidarity. I came across this poem by Franz Wright. It's called Preparations. And this is just a piece of that poem, but it was really powerful when I read it. And it's in a book called God's Silence. And he says, while there is still time, I call to mind your constant, unrequited, and preemptive forgiveness. And I remember you're not and never were the object of my thought, my prayer, my words, but rather I was the object of yours. That to me is very beautiful. That I can think, like, if I just think about God or believe in God enough or follow whatever I need to follow, then, then we're good. But I came across this poem, and I was struck by the reality that, no, as much as I think I might be something toward God or I need to be this way, no, the, only, the constant thing is that God is concerned with me, rescuing me, protecting me, loving me. Loving you, loving us. That's the constant thing. And we can't actually remove ourselves from being people that God wants to go after. 
And that's the second thing about the covenant, about God's reliable solidarity, I think is so important. And that's that God wants to be with and near us. That there's a constant trajectory in Scripture of God wanting to be with his people. We see that at the very beginning when God creates the heavens and the earth. He is with his people. There's a separation, and it's as if God is continually wanting and moving and pursuing after us to be with us. Again, bringing up Egypt, I am the Lord your God, I will be with my people. Comes up all over the Old Testament. And certainly we see the most significant act of being with in the person of Jesus, which in John 1, we see that God was made flesh in Jesus, and as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, and moved into the neighborhood, that God is constantly and always and will forever move toward us. And that is where the story of Scripture ends in Revelation 21, where it says that that John, having this revelation, sees God coming to earth to be with and near his people. I mean, is that your image of God? Is that your view of God as someone who wants to be with and near you? And has been and will forever be seeking to do that, and is doing that, is moving toward you, wants to be with you. Because believing that about God, I really does think change, it changes everything. If I have a God who the relationship, he's the primary holder of that relationship, it changes things. If I believe in a God who wants to be with and near me, it actually changes the way I understand the world and think about myself and others and what we're doing here. I had the incredible opportunity last in December. Um, so Diane Stringham, who's, she is a member of this church and a really wonderful woman, uh, and she has been struggling and wrestling with ALS for many years. Uh, and they've done many different things to, to try and, and really just alleviate some of the symptoms and the pain. Uh, and she had an inc- like a terrible accident uh, this last fall, in which she, um, her, her, she broke bones, and she, she couldn't move already, but then this just made it even worse. And she had to be taken to the emergency room and into the hospital and had to have so many surgeries. And I went to visit her a couple times, uh, and uh, the first time I went, it, it just, she just did not. She didn't look good. Uh, and um, she was, like, heavy breathing, and it was really belabored, and... and it was just a, it was hard to be there. I was with, there with Amy Honeycutt, and we were there and, and tried to talk, and, and, and we prayed with her. And then I went another time after that, and she looked like it was just, I mean, it was amazing how much better she looked. And I was there with Marsha Dobler, and, and we were there listening. And, and the thing about Diane, if you've spent any time with her, you're like, how is it that you smile? Um, how, how does that work, that you, that, that is possible? And because I just don't get it. And if you talk with her and you talk with Ed, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. But we were there and we were talking with her and, and um, Marsha and I. And I just, I said to Diane, I was like, I'm just so grateful for 
your joy and that you smile. And, and I, man, I, I think I can get through this. Um, but she said something like, I'll actually never forget for the rest of my life. <clears throat> Do you remember this, Marsha, what she said? She said to us, she looked at us, and she said, well, it's easy when I have your beautiful faces looking at me. <laughs> I mean, that's just nuts. Like, that, just, that doesn't make any sense to me, that that's, that's possible. And I've thought about that, and I think about this psalm, and I think about God's steadfast love and his reliable solidarity and his being near and with us and holding on to the relationship. And certainly what Diane was able to say that, and in many ways hers, that moment actually just brings this psalm to life for me in a really powerful way, but it's a cultivated life. She's able to say that because of a life that she's cultivated, and it's a cultivation, I think, of trust in God. And it's a cultivation in, in a, a, a really resting in the fact that God, that God really does love her. And that even in the moment of some terrible tragedy and hardship, she's actually able to receive the ways God loves her. She doesn't reject those. She doesn't... She wants to be healed, and we want her healing, and, and, and we pray for that. And she wants that, certainly. But wanting that and not having it doesn't dismiss the way that God is moving toward her in love. And she's able to, she was able to receive us as an incarnation of God's love in her life in that moment. And that, to me, is just remarkable. It doesn't make sense to me apart from a, cultiv- a cultiv- cultivated spirituality, really, that lands and finds at its base this, this God who loves her and wants to be with her. And so I've thought about that. Okay, well, what gets in my way? What gets in my way of actually cultivating that, that type of spirituality, that life with God, that believing and trusting that God really is holding on to the relationship that, that we have together and really is moving toward me. And I think it comes down to this distorted view that I have of myself and that I have of God. And Lou brought this up, and I think so helpfully, last week about the stories we tell about ourselves and about God and the, the, the ways that they can actually interfere or be obstacles to who God is in our lives. And so I just want to talk briefly about a few of those and then maybe um, offer, I say maybe because I'm looking at this clock, maybe offer some like ways forward and seeing how we can cultivate this trust. So this distorted view of God and ourselves, and, and I'm speaking very personally, and again, it's something Lou talked about, but I think it's worth um, kind of landing on. This distorted view of self comes from this idea that I am not a person or a thing worthy for God to be with. I mean, that someone, for whatever reason, I believe this lie, that, that there's this deficiency or there's this thing messed up in my brain or in my life that, that keeps me from actually thinking that God wants to be with me. And, and I would imagine 
Well, actually, no, not just imagine. I know, because I've had conversations with you this last week, that you feel the same way, or at least some of you in here. You feel that they're at the base core of who you are. There is something that keeps you from being a person that God wants to be with and near. That you are maybe a person who, hasn't, who is doing something or not enough things to hold on to this relationship. But it's a distortion. It's not reality. It's not actually how it works. Um, and this kind of feeling is exemplified to me. Uh, so my favorite album of last year was an, an album called Sprained Ankle by the artist Julian Baker. And I, I absolutely love this album so much. And I would suggest that the, that the arc of this album is about a person coming to terms with who she is in re- reality all the things she may have done or not did, or all the ways, all the mistakes she's made, but then also this trying to believe and understand that there's this God in spite of all that who loves and cares for her. And kind of in the middle of this album, there's this song called Everybody Does, and, and which has this refrain. And every time it hits me, it, um, every time I listen to it, it hits me. And here's the refrain. It's, up, it's back here. I'm not going to sing it, so sorry about that. I know you're all disappointed. Um, She says, and I know myself better than anybody else, and you're going to run. You're going to run when you find out who I am. I know I'm a pile of filthy wreckage you will wish you'd never touched. But you're going to run when you find out who I am. Yeah, you're going to run. And I wonder, like, I don't think maybe how he feels as dramatic as how Julian Baker feels, but I think we feel what our feeling is a little bit more subtle and a little more insidious but it's still there, that there's this thing, primarily us, and whatever it is kind of going inside or that we're involved with or whatever that keeps God from wanting to be with us, that we're like, for whatever reason, a pile of filthy wreckage that God would wish he'd never touched. But that's just not true. And I think it is true that God actually runs, but I think it's toward us, not away from us. And I think that that's who God is, that God is a God who is running toward us wanting to be with us. And I think that and I think that one of the things that we feel that we aren't is we're people who just don't have it together in the way that we think we should. We think that wow, if man God would love us and we'd feel his love if I could just get this one part of my life better. Or, you know, if I, if I was just a little bit more patient with my kids, yes, absolutely. Or if I was actually committed to my quiet time, which I said I'd start in January 1, and now we're here at 29, and I'm just, I'm the worst. Or, you know, if I was just a little bit more faithful in this area in my life. Or, you know what, like, I just, I, if, I, if I could just feel like I was good enough, there's that enoughness again. If I was just good enough at my job or my home life or whatever. I mean, there's so many things. You know them, and they're particular to you and your stories. But you have them, and you think because you're not enough or because you're, you're, too, you're too broken or maybe you're, you're too filthy or, I don't know, you're too whatever or you're not enough this. The thing is, is like, well... What's true is God still wants to be with you in all of that. Despite how you feel about yourself, God feels so much more loving 
and gracious and seeks reliable solidarity with you, with me, with us. And once I think that clicks for us in our lives, then I think we will be people who are experienced the love of God because we're open to it in new ways, because we actually believe God is moving toward us in love and we're able to receive it. If God is pouring it out, are we able to receive it? Are you able to receive it? What's actually keeping you from from believing that he's pouring it out to you? And so what's the way forward? What's the way forward in all of this? I mean, it's, I think it's encapsulated in the word trust. I mean, I think that's the way forward, trusting that this is actually who God is. So then there's the question of how do we cultivate trust? How do we cultivate trust in a God who wants to be with us and near us? How do we tr- cultivate trust that we are enough and that God loves us in who we are right now? How do we cultivate trust believing that God is the one who holds us together and the relationship together and that we aren't the primary reason why this whole thing works? How do we cultivate a life like that? Now, I'm going to suggest two practices. And I think, well, I think one is going to be a little bit surprising, um, but uh, maybe not. It's just old school. It's basic, right? I just going back to the basics. One of the ways I think we cultivate trust is through a practice, some sort of practice, about Sabbath. So the practice of Sabbath, this idea that, that we, like in, in Israel, it was so fundamental, it was actually a commandment that they would experience, that they would practice the idea of Sabbath, that one day a week they would be people who would not be doing, but would be receiving. And I think that we need to figure it out now, in the 21st century, how we can cultivate and practice Sabbath. So I don't think it's as easy as like taking a day off. And I have conversations like this all the time where I'm talking, I'm thinking about Sabbath. How do I make it work? What does that look like? And I just am like, I can't make it work. I don't know how to make it work. It's just not practical, which is exactly the point of Sabbath. It's not practical. Like, that's the whole thing. It's to take one day where you realize that life does not rest or move or work on practicality. Life works and moves and actually is filled because of God. And if we can remove ourselves and develop a practice where we can realize and sit and rest in the trust of who God is, I think we actually might be people who are transformed a little bit. People who realize, okay, well, it's not... it's not in, in I, just because I woke up doesn't mean all of a sudden like everyone's like, thank, thank God, Daniel's awake. <laughs> Otherwise, who knows where we'd be. Um, and like, th- but that's how I live my life. It's like I, I, I live my life as if like I am God's gift to the world. And you, the thing is, is you do too. <laughs> and and we are a gift to one another, but we don't make this whole thing run round and round and round. We're not the primary movers. God is. God is the one who moves toward us. And maybe if we just kind of sat back and stopped, then all of a sudden our world might be opened up to who God really is, to the God who is holding it all together. In Colossians 1, it, like, Paul is, is, is talking about Jesus, and he says it's Jesus, it's in him all, that all things 
work and hold together. Not in Daniel that all things work and hold together, but in Jesus, all things work and hold together. Barbara Brown Taylor says this about Sabbath. And listen, um, it says, Sabbath was the day when Israel celebrated its freedom from compulsion. On that one day every week, the people didn't work and still they were fed. On that one day every week, they remembered their worth, lay not in their own productivity, but in God's primordial love for them. So at least one day in every seven, pull off the road and park the car in the garage, close the door to the tool shed and turn off the computer. Stay home, not because you're sick, but because you are well. Talk someone you love into being well with you. Take a nap, a walk, an hour for lunch. Test the premise that you are worth more than you can produce. That even if you spent one whole day of being good for nothing, you would still be precious in God's sight. And when you get anxious because you're convicted that this isn't so, remember that your own conviction is not required. This is a commandment. Your worth has already been established even when you are not working. The purpose of the commandment is to woo you to the same truth. I mean, that's amazing. Test the premise. Test the premise that you are worth more than you can produce. Test the premise that you're worth more than you can produce. Test the premise that, you're, that, that God's love for you is actually worth more than, than what you can do for God. Test the premise that, that God wants to be with you even more, even more than you're not wanting to be with him. Test the premise that you're enough. Test the premise and own the reality that you really can't do it all. Test the premise that God actually loves you and is moving constantly and forever toward you to be with you and near you because that's who God is. And because that's what God wants, is to be with us and near us.